Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The bodies of five vulnerable women who went missing from the streets of Ipswich were found over a 10-day period. Suffolk Police launched the most extensive investigation in the force's history, and within a week of the last two victims being found, they had a positive DNA match. Not the profile of the prime suspect, but a man who had flown under the radar despite living in the epicentre of the disappearances. As darkness fell in London Road, the police work continued. All the indications are that investigators intend to examine their latest suspect's flat in minute detail. They'll be looking to see if there's any evidence here that a violent attack has taken place. Because during that, there could be blood, there could be saliva, or even any other bodily fluids which could be splattered around the wall. And then, irrespective of how much cleaning or even painting, that can be found. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 45 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 8, Episode 44 for Part 1 of this two-part case. Forty-eight-year-old Stephen Wright's DNA was found to match samples on swabs taken during three of the victims' post-mortems. As a result, he was put under police surveillance, and investigators tried to learn more about the outwardly average middle-aged man. Stephen Wright, more commonly known as Steve, was born in Norfolk in April 1958 to parents Conrad and Patricia. The Wrights were married two years before their son's birth. Steve Wright had three siblings and was initially raised in Erpingham. Due to the nature of his father's work as an RAF police officer, the family frequently moved, settling for short periods at RAF bases in Singapore and Malta before they eventually returned to the UK. According to Conrad in the mid-60s, Patricia abandoned the family, leaving Conrad to care for the children. She had allegedly met another man. Describing the impact it had on young Steve Wright and how Patricia had left the family because they did not fit into her lifestyle, Patricia's sister said, I believe it had a terrible effect. He sat outside their house on the curb all day, waiting for his mum to return but she never did. It was so sad. However, things did not seem so clear-cut. 
Patricia later claimed that Conrad was abusive and did not let her take the children with her. Furthermore, Wright's older brother David also said their childhood was marred by abuse. He told the standard, There were beatings and mental abuse. It was as bad as it can get. There was physical and sexual abuse involving Steve. In October 1968, a few years after becoming a single parent, Conrad married 21-year-old Valerie Crane in Blythe, Suffolk. Steve Wright lived with his father and stepmother until he left school at 16. Deciding he needed a trade, Wright began working in the field of hospitality before joining the Merchant Navy, where he worked as a kitchen porter. A couple of years later, Wright met his first wife, Angela O'Donovan, who was still a teenager when they married. The couple settled in Wales and had a son, but the relationship fell apart. Wright then became a steward aboard the Queen Elizabeth II. It was on board the passenger ship that Wright met his second wife, Diane Cole. He spent six years travelling from port to port, and according to those who knew him at the time, it was while docked in seaside towns that he began employing sex workers. Steve Adler, who had also worked as a steward on the ship in the 80s, said, Quite a few of the guys went off with prostitutes. Steve made no secret of the fact that he enjoyed going with hookers. According to his second wife, Diane, Wright had a raging temper, and he had been abusive during their time together. She said that he had attacked her numerous times, and once shoved her head into a wall for a minor disagreement over bed linen. On another occasion, after convincing her to go ashore with other staff members, Wright flipped. Diane recalled, When I got back on the cabin door was a note saying, Slag whore. Hope Jeff was better than me. In the cabin he got all the booze, drank as much as he could himself and then poured the rest down the sink. He was in the cabin and he said, You liked Hawaii that much I thought I would make you some grass skirts. When I got into the wardrobes, all my uniforms had been cut into shreds. He went for me with the blade. He lunged at me and stuck it in the door. Diane would later wonder if Wright had something to do with the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. Susie went missing in the summer of 1986 while working as an estate agent in Fulham. She had arranged to meet a client named Mr. Kipper and was never seen again. Wright and Susie had worked aboard the QE2 at the same time, and Diane recalled seeing Wright speak to Susie in the corridor. Diane told a correspondent for The Standard, He was talking for a long time because I got fed up and popped my head out again sometime later, and they were still there was too downtrodden to challenge him about it then because he was such a Jekyll and Hyde character and you never knew when he would flip. But when I look back, I can see how he was probably flirting with her. Steve Wright's marriage to Diane was said to be a means to allow them to work as pub landlords after they left the QE2. But the relationship broke down within a year when Diane discovered her husband was having an affair. In the interview with The Standard, she revealed that he had been unfaithful at a staff party. Holding a microphone, Diane had announced, Can I have your attention, ladies and gentlemen? First of all, I would like to thank you all for coming here and to thank Linda, who has worked so hard for us. It will be sad to see her go. And secondly, I would like to thank you all who knew my husband was having an affair. Enraged, Wright beat Diane every half an hour that night until she lost consciousness. After his second marriage ended in divorce, Wright moved around England running pubs. He had several affairs with local women and bar staff, 
and fathered another child with a barmaid called Sarah Whiteley. In 1993, Wright attempted to take his life by pumping exhaust fumes into his car, but he was rescued by the police. Wright had developed a gambling habit, regularly blowing all of his earnings on horses and had to borrow money from his father to pay his rent. In the late 90s, he travelled to Thailand, where he had docked many times while working on ships. His family later alleged that he had been scammed, and when he came back to the UK, Wright tried to take his own life again by overdosing. His attempt was unsuccessful, and he moved in with his father in Felixstowe, declaring himself bankrupt and spending a few months working in a hotel and a bingo hall. Wright then met a woman called Pam at the bingo hall. Pam was eight years older than Wright, and she too had been divorced before. Their relationship developed quickly, and while living together, they moved from Felixstowe to Bell Close in Ipswich. Around this time, Wright began working with a recruitment agency called Gateway in Levington. He also made money working at a hotel bar in Felixstowe, an establishment he was later convicted of stealing from, and this was why his profile was in the National DNA Database. In the years that followed, Wright found work through recruitment agencies including Gateway and Staff Bank, where he got a job as a forklift driver in an industrial estate on Hadley Road. At the beginning of October 2006, Wright and Pam moved into a house on London Road, just weeks before Tanya Nicholl went missing. It was at this address where Wright was arrested in the early hours of December 19th, 2006. After placing Steve Wright under surveillance after his DNA was found on three of the five victims... Investigators decided to take him into custody. At 4.45am, officers arrived at 79 London Road. Almost immediately, Wright, wearing a white polo shirt and blue tracksuit bottoms, answered the door. He looked bewildered and flushed when Detective Sergeant Martin Butcher arrested him on suspicion of murdering five women between October 30th and December 12th, 2006. Once he was cautioned, Wright did not reply. He did, however, ask if he could sit down because he felt like he was going to fall over. Wright was placed into a police vehicle and driven to Stowmarket Police Station around 15 miles away. He had his eyes shut and was sweating profusely during the drive. When he was brought into the station at 5.20am, Wright remained silent and after his solicitor arrived, he replied no comment to every question posed to him. We've got... The last girl to go missing with your DNA and the one before with your DNA. Both on their naked bodies. How can that be? No comment. Steve Wright's home was searched while he was in custody and his dark blue Ford Mondeo was seized and examined for any forensic evidence. For days, forensic investigators went through the London Road property. They took multiple items of clothing to see if there were any links between him and the crime scenes. Fibres had been found on all of the victims, and it took time to painstakingly compare the microscopic samples against samples taken from Wright's car and home. CCTV and ANPR footage were also analysed to establish Wright's movements at times significant to the case. While the investigation continued, Wright was charged with five counts of murder on December 21st, 2006. In the cold grey of a December morning, Suffolk police were on the streets early 
and in force for the court appearance. And so was the world's media, kept for the most part behind the crowd barriers. Only a few members of the public were watching as the quiet was broken by the sound of police sirens. Even as Steve Wright was appearing in court this morning, teams of forensic officers were continuing the search of his house in London Road here. It's a search that began on the day he was arrested and will be continuing, we're told, for some time to come. Now that someone's been charged, it's an equally demanding time for both the police and the Crown Prosecution Service because what they'll be looking at now is the evidence they've received from any number of witnesses in the inquiry, including forensic and CCTV and any other experts that they've brought in. It is vital to say that the man accused of these crimes has not been found guilty of anything at all. Equally important to remember that, whatever happens next, five families are grieving. Five families are in shock. Five families are coming to terms with the deaths of their loved ones. After Steve Wright was remanded into custody pending a trial, the first of five funerals took place on February 6th, 2007. Annette Nichols' funeral service was held at the Old Cemetery Chapel in Ipswich, and she was later laid to rest at Millennium Cemetery. A floral wreath that spelt mummy was left on her grave by her young son, Farron. Two days later, on February 8th, Paula Clonell's funeral was held at Tweedmouth Cemetery in Berwick-upon-Tweed, where she had been raised. Speaking before a Pied Piper led the service, Paula's father Brian said, This is a traumatic day for everyone who loved Paula. It's a day I never thought I would have to go through, burying one of my own children. I still cannot accept that she has gone. Five innocent girls lost their life, and I have sympathy for the other families. I will remember Paula as a child and not as the prostitute that she became. She was a carefree girl with her whole life in front of her, but that has been cruelly snatched away. I want to bury my daughter with respect. This is a day to remember Paula and what a wonderful person she was. Tanya Nichols' funeral was held on February 12th at St. Peter's Church in Ipswich. Her father Jim later spoke about the secret life his daughter had been living. I was saying the other day that during the last years of Tanya's life, it must have been horrible for her to have to put up a front to us. It must have been a strain to her to keep lying about where she was going. No one is happy telling lies all the time. She didn't want us to know what she was doing. She must have been under strain. When you're involved in an addiction like that, there's no way out. You're made a prisoner of drugs. A horse-drawn carriage took Gemma Adams' casket to her funeral service at St Andrew's Church in Rushmere on February 15th. Her father Brian said, She was good company bright and intelligent. If you asked her to do anything, she would do it well. We never had any rows with her at home. One of her teachers described her as an ordinary, intelligent girl from a nice family, and that's exactly what she was. Annalee Alderton's funeral took place at the West Chapel of Ipswich Crematorium on February 24th. Three months later in May 2007, Steve Wright pleaded not guilty to all five murders. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. On January 14th, 2008, legal proceedings began at Ipswich Crown Court opening one of the biggest murder trials in Suffolk's history, Peter Wright QC said. It is the prosecution case that either alone or in conjunction with another, these deaths were the handiwork of the defendant, and for a period of six and a half weeks he had preyed upon women working as prostitutes in and around Ipswich. Referring to the similarities between the victims' deaths and how they were found, the prosecutor added, Whilst undoubtedly incapacitated to a degree by drugs, these women did not die by accident or misadventure, but were murdered by him, by asphyxiation or compression of the neck. The state of their bodies and the circumstances in which they were systematically stripped and dumped is consistent with a campaign of murder as opposed to any unfortunate overdose on the part of an unwitting addict or accidental death while in the company of a client, who then dumped them whilst in a panic. As to what drives a man to embark upon a campaign such as this, we may never know. But we submit that one thing you can be certain of from the evidence in this case is that in late October 2006, something caused Steve Gerald James Wright to engage in such a campaign and that he is guilty of the murder of each of these women. The court heard that Wright had local knowledge of each of the sites where bodies had been left. He also had ample opportunity to abduct and kill the women as his partner Pam worked night shifts at a call centre called Anzabak. 
This was close to where the bodies of Annalee Alderton, Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols had been found. As Pam didn't have a driving licence, Wright used to drive her to work in his dark blue Ford Mondeo, and she would get the bus home when she finished her shift. The prosecutor said that the defendant's car, or one very similar to it, was seen on CCTV at times significant to the investigation. On the night of October 30th and in the early hours of October 31st, Wright's car was spotted travelling around and then leaving Ipswich. Peter Wright QC told the jury, You may conclude on the evidence you hear he was cruising the red light district a short distance from his home in order to pick up not merely a prostitute, but a suitable victim. That victim was Tanya Nichol. Tanya was last seen approaching a dark-coloured car on Hanford Road the night she went missing. Her phone was disconnected from the network shortly before midnight. At 1.39am, Wright's licence plate was picked up by automatic number plate recognition cameras heading in the direction of Hintlesham and Belstead Brook, where Tanya's body was later found. He appeared to be wearing a high-vis reflective jacket in the footage. Wright was stopped during a routine roadblock on November 2nd, and he was asked if he recognised Tanya Nichol. He said he did not. The jury were told that Wright's partner Pam was off work with an illness during the first two weeks of November. The prosecution alleged that when Pam returned to work, Wright resumed his activities, and Gemma Adams went missing. The last message received on Gemma's phone was at 12.58am on November 15th. Soon after, her phone was switched off. A car believed to be the defendant's Ford Mondeo was captured on CCTV in Hanford Road, where Gemma was last seen. Andrew Wooler, a vehicle identification expert from the Transport Research Foundation, had viewed the footage that had been compiled. Voicing his opinion on the evidence, Wooler said, It's highly likely that the suspect vehicle here is a Mark III Ford Mondeo. From the work we've done, we can't find another vehicle which matches the suspect vehicle as well. Features such as the position of the tax disc and a Christmas tree air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror supported the view that it was Wright's car. Two weeks later, when Pam went back to working night shifts, Wright was stopped by the police while driving through the red light district. PC Alyssa Newman and PC Justin Wood spotted the defendant's car moving slowly along London Road at 12.50am. When they pulled him over and asked him what he was doing, he said he couldn't sleep and was going for a drive. PC Wood testified, I gave him advice on the red light area, telling him that it was the red light area and the reasons why I stopped him. Wright said that he was not aware it was a red light area. The prosecutor remarked, This was palpably untrue. He lived locally and he was a frequenter of prostitutes. His lie was not out of embarrassment. It was designed to conceal what his real motive was in being out that night. Evidence would be presented from the defendant's neighbours, who alleged to have heard banging in the early hours of the morning and the washing machine being turned on between midnight and 2am on several occasions. Peter Wright QC added, It could have been routine but nocturnal activities. On the other hand, such conduct we say is equally consistent, if not more so, with the defendant having been involved in the murder of each of these women. Neighbours also disclosed that they saw Wright cleaning his car inside and out most weekends. The prosecution suggested that the killer changed where they dumped the bodies after Tanya Nichol and Gemma Adams had been found. 
Annalee Alderton's body was discovered just 200 metres from where Wright used to work. And on the night Annalee was last seen alive, Wright's car was spotted near Hanford Road and then towards the A14 roundabout two hours later. Peter Wright QC explained that the killer had targeted working girls who were addicted to drugs such as heroin and cocaine. He said, Each were reduced at the time of their deaths to working the streets of Ipswich as prostitutes in order to survive and to fund their habit. Each of them was accordingly vulnerable to the predatory conduct of a killer or killers acting alone or together with another such vulnerability arising by virtue of their very occupation and the risk that women engaged in this sort of conduct routinely have to endure. PC Janet Humphrey, who had worked in Ipswich for two decades and often policed the red light district, testified that since the 80s and the development of Portman Road Football Stadium, the women working the streets had been pushed into smaller residential areas. The places most frequented by sex workers in Ipswich included West End Road, Hanford Road, Burlington Road, Sir Alf Ramsey Way and London Road, where the defendant lived. PC Humphrey told the court that it was common practice for sex workers to take their clients out of the area for sex, and locations used included Belstead Brook, an area said to be popular for dogging. Other locations such as Nacton Foreshores and Delay-By on Old Felixstowe Road, where some of the victims were found, were also used. PC Humphrey had met the victims during her time policing the area and told the court, These women led chaotic lifestyles. The jury were presented with DNA evidence linking the defendant to three of the victims, Annalee Alderton, Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols. Steve Wright's DNA, believed to have come from sweat or other bodily fluids, was found on the victims' bodies. The chances that the DNA had originated from someone other than Wright was one in a billion. The evidence had been analysed by Dr Peter Howe, who worked for the Forensic Science Service. Gloves recovered from the driver's side of Wright's car were found to have semen staining and DNA from both Annette Nichols and Annalee Alderton. Dr Howe testified, In my opinion, the findings provide very strong support for the view that Steve Wright was wearing the semen-stained gloves when he was in contact with Annalee Alderton and Annette Nichols. Swabs taken from the back of the defendant's car tested positive for blood. Upon further analysis, the blood was determined to have come from Paula Clonell. Furthermore, a jacket found hanging in the hallway of Wright's home had small amounts of blood staining determined to be from Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols, both of whom were found with scratches that bled. Peter Wright QC stated, You may conclude that the presence of these DNA components and the wearing of these gloves when he was in contact with these women is highly unusual unless he was wearing the gloves having murdered the women and was about to dispose of their bodies. Forensic scientist Ray Palmer then took the jury through fibre evidence in the case. Blue polyester fibres had been found on both Annalie and Annette's bodies. These matched the fibres recovered from a pair of tracksuit bottoms Wright had been wearing at the time of his arrest. Fibres from Wright's jacket were also found on Annalie's body. In addition, a number of red fibres were identified on Annette Nichols' body, and the same fibres were found in the back of Wright's car. They were believed to have come from a red throw blanket that was never recovered. Forensic scientist Ray Palmer told the court... My findings relating to Annette Nichols fit with a view that she had been in contact with items that had been present in Wright's home at around the time of her deposition at the site she was found. 
Speaking about Paula Clonell, the prosecutor said, Fibres were also found upon her body which matched the variable fibres found to comprise a lumberjack coat. Polyester fibres corresponding to tracksuit trousers owned by the defendant and with fibres found in the defendant's car, upon his sofa and his reflective jacket. The defendant had been seen on ANPR footage wearing the reflective jacket while behind the wheel of his Ford Mondeo. Fibres linking the defendant to the murders of Tanya Nicholl and Gemma Adams had been retrieved from hair samples taken during the post-mortem. Their bodies had been in the water too long to recover DNA evidence, but their hair contained fibres that matched the carpet in Wright's car, sofa and clothing. The prosecutor alleged... The finding of fibres in the head and hair debris of each of these women that matched fibres from the defendant's home environment and clothing was again no coincidence. It is the prosecution case that this link with the defendant and the bodies of Tanya Nicholl and Gemma Adams is yet another strand that connects the defendant to the murder and disposal of the body of each of these women. Wearing a black suit, white shirt and striped tie, Steve Wright was seated in the prisoner's box next to his barrister, Timothy Langdale, QC. Langdale told the jury that his client would admit to being in contact with all five women in the days or hours before they died, but maintained he did not kill them. The defence alleged that Wright had sex with Gemma Adams, Annalee Alderton, Paula Clonell and Annette Nichols at his home or in his car. According to Timothy Langdale, QC Wright picked Tanya up in his car with the intention of having sex, but changed his mind and dropped her off at home. The barrister told the court, The defence case is that Steve Wright was somebody who, in October, November and December of 2006, when he was living at 79 London Road, availed himself of the services of prostitutes in the red-light district of Ipswich. Amongst those who he encountered in that way were those five young women. Timothy Langdale QC said that the DNA and fibre evidence connected to Wright and his home environment could be explained by the contact he had with the victims but the defence challenged the assertion that those findings meant that he was responsible for their deaths. Continuing his opening address, Langdale asked the jury of three women and nine men to consider the world in which sex workers operate and the evidence of those who knew them or had associations with them. Steve Wright took the stand in the fourth week of the trial. He admitted that he had been using sex workers since his time in the Merchant Navy and while running pubs. He confessed that he used to go to massage parlours in Ipswich like Oasis and Cleopatra's, but found that sex workers on the street cost less. It was after his partner Pam started working nights that Wright began to pay for sex more often. He told the court, When we first got together, it was pretty good. But when she started working nights and I was working days, we were like two ships passing in the night. We never really had any time together. Wright explained that his partner had no idea he used sex workers and thought she would have left him if she found out. He added, I did not feel good about myself. It was a situation I got myself in. Reiterating what he had told police constables in December 2006, Wright claimed he did not know his home was in the centre of the red light district. He said that he usually took sex workers to a secluded location to have sex, but on occasion he would take them back to his home. Wright claimed that he usually wore his lumberjack coat and tracksuit bottoms while picking up women. According to Wright, he didn't want Pam to find out what he had been doing, 
so he only had sex with the women on the bedroom floor which he covered with his jackets. On the occasions where he had sex in his car, Wright would use gloves he kept in the vehicle to remove the condom, because removing it with his bare hands, he claimed, would make him gag. He alleged that he kept another pair of gloves in his jacket pocket to remove the condom after having sex in his house. In response to further questioning by his barrister, Wright said that he would sweat easily, especially during sex. The defence alleged that Wright's account explained the presence of his DNA on the women, their DNA in his car, and on his clothing and gloves. CCTV footage of Tanya Nicholl getting into a dark blue car on the night she went missing was played to the court. Wright said it was possible that he was the person seen collecting Tanya. As she got into the car, I noticed she had acne on her face, he said, and that is what put me off quite a bit, really. According to Wright, he dropped Tanya off on Portman Road and went home. Other images showing Wright driving around late on the nights the women went missing were shown to the jury, and Wright insisted that he had been out driving because he had trouble sleeping. Wright testified that he did not know Tanya or Gemma had gone missing until he was stopped by the police on November 20th and was asked if he recognised them. During cross-examination by Peter Wright QC, the defendant was asked, You solicited five women from the streets of Ipswich amongst others, and each of them are dead. Is that a coincidence? Wright replied that it was and when asked if it was a coincidence that he had solicited the women in the order in which they died, he replied, It would seem so, yes. A similar response was repeated over 50 times during cross-examination when each piece of evidence was put to Steve Wright. Peter Wright QC called the defendant's explanation of how his semen and the victim's DNA were found on his gloves a feeble attempt to explain away the evidence. The prosecutor put it to Wright that he had used something made with red acrylic fibres to carry the bodies of his victims from his car to where they were found, especially as Annalee Alderton had no drag or scratch marks on her body. Confronting Wright about his no-comment answers during questioning after his arrest, the prosecutor told him he could have answered based on the evidence he was relying on in court. The prosecutor asked, Was it that you were quite simply happy to sit behind the advice that you were then being given because the truth was you had absolutely no explanation to give? You had not then come up with this account seeking to tailor it to fit the forensic evidence in this case. To bolster the contention that Steve Wright was innocent, the defence introduced evidence about the first man who had been arrested on suspicion of the five murders, Tom Stevens. A statement from a witness named Miss L was read to the court. Miss L described having an affair with Tom Stevens after answering a post in the Lonely Hearts section of a newspaper in 2004. Stevens was initially polite and reassuring, but he had suggested they come up with a safe word because he wanted to hold her down during sex. According to Miss L, she did not want to do it but Stevens overpowered her a few times and put his hands on her shoulders or across her neck. The relationship ended in August 2004, and in February of the following year, Miss L moved in with a friend. The defence alleged that Stevens had called the friend's home and told her that he was pursuing a debt and had stalker's rights. Miss L had borrowed £500 from Stevens before their relationship ended, and after persistent pestering and a threat to kill both women, Stevens was handed a harassment order. 
Alison Fenning from the Christian charity RSVP Trust that manages the Bridge Project, an organisation for women with, quote, broken lives, said that she and other members would go into the red light district in Ipswich and offer sex workers support. Alison Fenning met Tanya Nicholl in August 2006 and spoke to her a few times over the following months. On October 4th of that year, Alison saw Tanya with a white-haired man wearing a shell suit, who she later recognised as Tom Stevens. Stevens had approached a sex worker that Alison was speaking with and asked her if she knew any self-defence. According to Alison Fenning, Stevens then mentioned a restraint technique called the gooseneck thumbbar. This made her think he was an undercover officer because it was used in the police force. Tanya's mother Kerry had testified that she got a call from Tom Stevens at her house on October 31st, 2006. He asked if Tanya was there, and Kerry replied that Tanya was sleeping. At the time, Kerry assumed Tanya was in her room because she hadn't seen her. Kerry told the court that Stevens seemed confused by her answer. Stevens called again the following day, and Kerry told him she thought Tanya was staying with a friend, but she was concerned and was thinking of calling the police. Stevens told her that was a good idea. On November 10th, 11 days after Tanya was last seen alive, Stevens phoned Carrie and spoke to her for 45 minutes about his relationship with her daughter. Stevens claimed he would pick Tanya up at the end of her road and bring her into the town centre. He also revealed that Tanya had a drug problem and would spend 30 to 50 pounds on drugs each night. During the call, Stevens told Carrie that Tanya had plans to move out of the house and if her mother tried to stop her, she would do a runner and live with drug dealers. Stevens had also asked Carrie, would the girls still go out and do what they do if one of them got murdered? November 1st, Tom Stevens called the police and told them he had confidential information about Tanya Nicholl. He said that he would take her to buy drugs and that she would offer to strip naked for clients for higher pay. He made more calls to the police in the weeks that followed, including on November 21st when he told them he feared he would be seen as the next Ian Huntley. Huntley killed 10-year-old schoolgirls Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman in Soham in August 2002. Stevens was formally interviewed by the police the following day and told investigators that he saw Tanya five or six times per week and did small jobs for her in exchange for sexual favours. Nothing was found during a search of Tom Stevens' home, and he was told not to interfere with the investigation by going to massage parlours and onto the streets questioning other women. On December 11th, Stevens went to the temporary police station that had been set up on London Road and told officers that he knew all of the victims, and they were drug addicts. He had also said that if he were the killer, he would have strangled them. Over the days that followed, Stevens was seen in the red light district attaching bouquets of flowers to lampposts. After speaking to several news outlets... Stevens went to a police station with a newspaper that named him as a suspect. He told officers he felt suicidal and had to leave his job. On December 18th, Stevens phoned the police and told them that he was concerned that he had a split personality disorder and wondered if he had done things he couldn't remember because it was a different persona. He was arrested later that night and during his interview he refused to answer questions about his links to the murdered women. However, once the DNA link to Wright had been established, Tom Stevens was released without charge.
Peter Wright QC presented the prosecution's closing statement. He told the jury there were five issues they would have to consider. Whether the women had been murdered. If the murders were connected. If one person was involved in all five. If another person had acted with them. And if the defendant was responsible. The prosecutor argued that the defence's introduction of Tom Stevens was a matter of conjecture, and although Stevens did not have an alibi, Peter Wright QC said, the absence of evidence proving innocence is rather different to the presence of evidence proving guilt. Going through the evidence that linked the defendant to the murders, the prosecutor asked the jury if each piece was a singular misfortune or coincidence or if it was a significant fact. The evidence agreed upon by both the prosecution and defence was that the women only started going missing when Steve Wright began using sex workers in Ipswich and stopped when Wright was arrested. The women only went missing on nights that Pam was at work. Wright's car was seen in the red light district on two nights when women went missing. Their bodies were found in areas that Wright was familiar with through his work, and fibres found on their bodies came from Wright's clothing, car and home. The prosecutor voiced the opinion that Wright's no-comment responses after his arrest proved that he needed time and inspiration to develop a story that would support his claims of innocence. During the defence's closing speech... Timothy Langdale QC argued that there was no smoking gun in the Crown's case and that the circumstantial evidence did not prove beyond reasonable doubt that Steve Wright had murdered the five victims. The barrister asserted that the evidence simply proved that Wright had been with the women at some point before their deaths and that Wright did not have the skill or forethought required to carry out five murders. Langdale addressed the fibre evidence linking the victims to Wright's car and said, These girls were hardly strangers to the interiors of other people's cars, and it is not as if Wright's car was some special breed of car with special material. God knows how many would be using the same carpet. The defence relied on several points for their case that Wright admitted to knowing all five victims, that he had had sex with four of them, some in his home. They had all taken off their clothes in his house, and that he had innocent explanations for his DNA being found on three of the victims' bodies. The jury retired at midday on February 20th, 2008 to deliberate. The following day, when the verdicts were announced, cheers and sobs of relief echoed from the public gallery. Steve Wright was found guilty by unanimous decision of the murders of Tanya Nichol, Gemma Adams, Annalee Alderton, Paula Clonell, and Annette Nichols. Just before the verdict, Steve Wright had given a small smile to his legal team. He had described himself during the trial as a placid person. But in the run-up to Christmas two years ago, he sparked the country's biggest manhunt since the Yorkshire Ripper. Just weeks after he'd moved into this area, for reasons he may never disclose, Steve Wright suddenly embarked upon what the prosecution would term an active campaign of murder. All his targets, young women, all prostitutes on these streets, and all utterly vulnerable. As Steve Wright faces the prospect of a 30-year minimum sentence, the prosecution has indicated that we may never know whether he acted alone or had an accomplice. When he had heard the verdicts, Wright did not react. He later told the East Anglian Daily Times, I did expect to be found not guilty when the verdict came in. It was like knives going into my heart. My thoughts were, this cannot be happening, they have made a mistake. Have I stepped into the wrong courtroom? They cannot be talking about me. It just did not seem real. 
after the prosecution requested a whole-life order be imposed. Rights barrister Timothy Langdale QC said that a definitive term would be sufficient, and added, Until this man had reached the age of 48, he had never committed any crime remotely approaching those in this case. There had been no sign of violence or of any sexual obsession until late 2006. It is a matter of speculation as to what caused him to act as the jury have found that he did. But that trouble-free history does give ground for there being a real prospect he no longer represents any threat. On February 22, 2008... Steve Wright was brought back to Ipswich Crown Court to be sentenced by Mr Justice Gross. The judge acknowledged the mandatory life sentence for murder. He added, however, it was his decision whether Wright would ever be eligible for parole. Addressing the defendant, Judge Gross said, This was a targeted campaign of murder. The women in question were vulnerable in the sense they were exposed to the risk of their occupation. The five women were addicted to drugs that led them to prostitution in order to fund their addictions. Drugs and prostitution exposed them to risk, but neither killed them. You did. You are responsible for their deaths. You killed them, stripped them and left them in rural or semi-rural locations. You selected the victims for sexual activity while they were incapable of resistance and killed them, stripped them, and abandoned their bodies. Why you did it may never be known, but as the jury have concluded disbelieving your denials, murder them you did. The judge spoke about the public reaction to the case, and the macabre way in which Wright had posed two of the victims' bodies. As his sentence was passed, the defendant was flanked by two officers and had his eyes fixed on the judge's bench. Mr Justice Gross said, It demands a whole life order, and that's the order that I make. Wearing a black suit and open collar shirt, Wright was led from the dock and out of the courtroom. Steve Wright was escorted into a police van soon after he was sentenced, and as the vehicle drove by the front of the court, some members of the public shouted out scum. He was taken to Belmarsh Prison, where he had already spent over 400 days on remand. He was placed on suicide watch. Speaking after the sentencing hearing, Detective Chief Superintendent Stuart Gull, who led the investigation, said that he hoped the victims' families would get some comfort from the outcome. Gemma Adams' father, Brian, was relieved that everything was over and they could get on with their lives. Paula Clonell's mother, Isabella, wrote a statement about her daughter and the impact the murder had on her family. She said, I can't remember Paula ever having a bad word or anything nasty to say about anyone or anything. She accepted all the nasty things that had ever happened in her life. She took everything in her stride. She was such a brave person, ever so gentle and loving. Her family came first every time. As she got older, her personal life got into a bit of a muddle, as life does to a lot of people, and Paula was introduced to the terrible drug heroin. That stuff just must have got such a hold on my daughter, and she found it ever so difficult to get clean from it. Paula did try her best in everything she did, and I am very proud of her. She is a person who cannot be replaced. She loved family life ever so much. We often talked of the future. She had so many plans, hopes, dreams, and all our family can do now is try to live those dreams for Paula. She was a kind, caring person who will never be forgotten. 
Our family are devastated about the way Paula was taken from us. Isabella asked what right Steve Wright had to take five lives. She said that his excuses made her feel sick, adding, My daughter would still be alive today if she had not been murdered. Who knows, she may have been off the drugs and leading a normal life. At least she would have had that choice. Steve Wright took that choice away from her and the other four girls. Some of the victims' families called for the reinstatement of the death penalty, and others reasoned that even capital punishment would not fix what had happened. Annette Nichols' mother said, Nothing will bring our beautiful, loving mother, daughter and sister back home. This man has robbed a little boy of a mother he adored. We can rest now knowing this man is no longer on the streets of Ipswich, ready to take another girl's life. So where are we now? After Steve Wright was convicted of killing Tanya Nichol, Gemma Adams, Anna Lee Alderton, Paul LeClanel and Annette Nichols, it was theorised that he could have killed long before he targeted working girls in Ipswich. Comparing a timeline of Wright's life with unsolved murders, it was speculated that Wright could have been responsible for the murders of women who went missing from Norwich. In the late 80s, Wright had managed a pub in the city called the Ferry Boat Inn and was known to many sex workers. Until today, Conrad Wright tried to persuade himself his son might be innocent. The 71-year-old former RAF policeman sat through the trial. When he got arrested for these five, and then I began to realise that he was in location of all the other things, then you start to think, maybe, you know, and possibly he is. Wright was 48 when he went on his killing spree. Criminologists say it's highly unusual to suddenly start committing murders at that late age. And this has led to speculation that Wright may be linked to other crimes. It is just speculation. Uh, there's no direct evidence that links him to any other cases. But as you know, we have given up all of our information, all of our forensics is available for forces who might want to check to see if there's any similarities, and then they will make contact uh, to see if there's any further information we can give them. In December 2023, Wright was arrested in connection with the murder of 17-year-old Victoria Hall in 1999. This was the second time he had been arrested in connection with the unsolved murder, and although he was released without charge back to prison, he remains under investigation. Steve Wright maintains that he is innocent of the murders and has attempted to appeal three times all of which were refused. His brother David and partner Pam continued to support him after his conviction. In 2014, a cabin owned by David Wright was set on fire, which led him to believe he had been targeted because of his brother. In a letter from HMP Long Larton to the East Anglian Daily Times in August 2008, Steve Wright wrote, What I would say to the people of Suffolk is be on your guard because the real killer is still out there. Although the injustice that has been done to me, I feel no malice or contempt for the people of Suffolk and for the families of the five girls that were cruelly taken away from them. I feel sorrow and heartfelt pain for their loss. With me being arrested for these crimes, it gave them someone to vent their anger at, to which I completely understand. But believe me when I say he is still out there, contemplating his next move. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our patrons for their support. 
This is the end of Season 8 of They Walk Among Us. In the interim, we are not on a full break, as we will be releasing some bonus episodes over the next month until we return for Season 9 on Wednesday, April 3rd. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.